milk is full of tiny reasons to be joyful. Just listen. Hmm, can't help but feel it's lacking something. That's because milk exposed to indoor light only has a fraction of the vitamins and nutrients our bodies were hoping for. This, though, this is milk from an Aluma-certified light-protected bottle. That's more like it. To step into the light, the bottle's got to be right. Search lightdamagesreal.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen and with me are... Jeff Kanata And Christy Puchko. Welcome to the show everyone. You can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. Today we're going to be discussing what we've been watching and then moving on into an in-depth review of American Animals. And if we have some time we'll do an After Dark for you guys as well. Uh, but before we do any of that, I just want to say I am violently ill again. And uh, if I sound like I'm extremely tired and uh, not feeling well, that's because that's exactly what's happening. So uh, Dave likes to the, work method, and yeah, we respect I, that. <laughs> method, uh, and in this case, I'm trying to achieve, uh, what, physically decimated podcaster? Is that the <laughs> part I'm playing? <laughs> I mean, you yeah. do you, bud. Yeah. I'm on board. Um, I'm, in, uh, I'm in pretty bad shape. And uh, some of you might be asking, hey, Dave, uh, weren't you sick not very long ago? And the answer is yes. I, apparently, my immune system has been severely compromised. Um, so <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why that is. You know, I, I blame Solo a Star Wars story. Let's just put it that way. So, <laughs> well, we appreciate you powering through, Dave. I'm trying, man. Without you. I'm trying, man. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I did bring in someone to uh, pinch hit for me, take a piece out of some of your opinions. Uh, Alan Scherstel from The Village Voice is going to be joining us for our review of American Animals, so look forward to that. But in the meantime, let's talk about some things we've been watching. Christy, uh, you finished Riverdale Season 2, right? So I did! I, I, I have not heard you profess your love of Riverdale yet on this podcast, as far as I remember. Uh, well, I did when I was just a guest host and you were on your sabbatical. Uh, but that was only partway through season two. And it was just that was that was ages ago in the world of Riverdale because things move fast. Um, but, yeah, I fell behind on Riverdale in like I think it was like February or something because I went to a film festival and I missed one episode and then it was two and then it was three. And it was like, it's just going to be impossible to catch up now. So I figured I would wait because uh the CW has a great deal with Netflix where basically as soon as their seasons are over, Netflix is like, okay, now we have all of them. So you can watch all of Riverdale season one and two on Netflix. And I recommend it because this show is bonkers. Um, if you've never watched Riverdale, it is the Archie comics, but through a very dark kind of neo-noir lens, a lot of crazy things happen in season two. Well, in season one, there's a murder that happens before the story starts. And then season one is all about solving the murder in season two, a serial killer starts stalking Riverdale and it's very, the sun, uh, the town that feared sundown. Is that right? No sun, the town that dreaded sundown, very that they even have an episode called that. The first half of the season is dealing with a serial killer. Then the second half starts this like other plot line. That's really bonkers and turns the genre again. Um, and it's actually such a bonkers show because in theory, all the characters are 15, but there's stuff like Veronica's like, maybe I should open a speakeasy. And you're like, sure. Why not? Sure. Like, let's just go with this. Um, it's very campy. It's very stylish. It is beautifully lit. Like what they've put together is such 
an insane show that it just feels like a gift that it exists at all. Um, and I really recommend now that it's on Netflix, you can burn through it and watch it all. And just in time, because this fall, the spinoff is coming straight to Netflix, which is the, the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which is based on a comic, which is a flat out horror book. Like, it is very scary. It is very upsetting. I am so excited to see what they're going to do with that. Um, but yeah, Riverdale is amazing. I think the performances are generally really fun. And if you're a big movie nerd, which I assume you are if you're listening to this podcast, there are so many references to movies. It's so crazy. There's like th- one scene where like Jughead's curtains are clearly the shining carpet. And then there's like people casually are referencing things like Blue Jasmine and like whatever happened to Baby Jane. And the whole Cheryl Blossom arc is very, you know, gray garden slash crimson peak slash it's just the best it's the craziest damn show uh i love 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 riverdale all right riverdale's available on netflix and it just completed season two jeff canada what have you been watching this week well uh i had a chance to go to an early screening of won't you be my neighbor this is the documentary about mr rogers you may remember christy talking about this a couple of weeks ago a few weeks ago now um uh, you know how we do the, the slash film, uh, summer movie wager every year. And, uh, in recent years, the, the wager, the bet has revolved around whoever wins being able to dictate everybody else has to watch something, yeah. uh, you know, uh, of two hours or less. This would be that for me, except on a national scale, <laughs> if I could force everybody in America <laughs> To watch one movie, it would be Won't You Be My Neighbor. I think it should be essential viewing for every American right at this moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is an absolutely beautiful portrait of a man who actually believed that kindness was important. What a thing. What a thing. I know people will make fun of me, but I, I didn't stop crying throughout the entire movie. I literally was 97 minutes of bawling for me. I just found it to be exquisitely beautiful uh, I grew up with Mr. Rogers, but it wasn't my favorite show. Um, so it's not like I have a particular attachment to him or 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 that show. I, of course, was familiar with it, watched it plenty when I was a kid, but it was never my favorite thing. But this movie is such a tender portrait of a tender man who had such a powerful message that seems to have been completely lost in our modern culture of greed and selfishness and this was just a man who was kind and believed in giving children uh, a moment of love uh, every time he spoke to them and uh, I just found this movie to be utterly beautiful and a reminder of how easy it is to be kind um, I don't know I, it's this very special movie I loved uh the, the this director's previous film was 20 feet from stardom which is another documentary i absolutely adore uh, on on netflix i believe it's still on netflix um and this is a really well constructed documentary as well i think uh it doesn't it's not really truly a biography of fred rogers more a, an analysis of his ideas and how he conveyed them and in that sense i just loved Everything about it, I just think it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. I told the story out of South By, but uh, I saw it at a uh, Alamo Draft House at South by Southwest, and um, there they have waiters that will like get you things like food and drinks. Is the idea? But I was crying so intensely that I wrote on the little paper to like notify them that I had an order, and I was like, "Please bring me napkins. I'm crying my face off." 
And um, the waiter brought me an entire box of tissues, oh. which was amazing. And I tipped him because that's great. And it was funny because I, I used those tissues throughout the movie just because it's so beautiful. And it was like as soon as the Mr. Rogers theme song started in the beginning, I was done. Like I was already weeping because just like, I don't know, man, there's just like a sacred part in me that that very much loves and ro- Mr. Rogers and was just like ready for this. And uh, yeah. what was funny was when the movie ended, the guy next to me who I did not know was this like broad-shouldered man who hadn't made a peep the entire movie he leaned forward and very quickly pulled two of the tissues from my tissue box and put them to his face and i was like yeah that's right buddy like <laughs> me too be yeah, okay. it's not I, i'm sure you'll agree christy it's not crying because it's sad no <laughs> it is crying because of how beautiful and how lost this figure is in our modern discourse that's actually what i like so much about the third act is it talks about the legacy and like Fred Rogers is gone and kind of like, now what? And I think the way they handle it is really beautiful. Um, I, I think the reason I cried the whole time is just because I was afraid when I saw this that it was going to unearth something about Fred Rogers that would like shatter my idea of him. And it does show you some things where he was flawed, but there's nothing scary. Like there's no milkshake duck moment of like BT dubs. He was secretly a, I don't know, baby eater or something like (laughs) 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 excuse me. Um, And like, you know, they, they actually have a story where he does something that I was very upset by watching the film, but the way they resolved the issue was very touching. And um, yeah, I, I think that this is a beautiful movie and I think it's a very hopeful movie. Uh, and I, I agree with Jeff. I think everybody, everybody, everybody should see it. I think it would only make everyone a better person. Uh, well, that's Won't You Be My Neighbor. It's out in select theaters on June 8th. So actually this Friday it'll be out in theaters. Uh, Jeff, what else have you been watching? Well, uh, I had a chance to watch a Netflix original film called Ibiza. And I should definitely um, – say right at the top that uh, this movie was written by one of my wife's very good friends. So take my opinion with a grain of salt there, but I liked it quite a lot. Uh, it's a, a very fun, silly romp. Uh, the kind of movie that you've probably seen a lot in your life. It's a, uh, a big, broad kind of goofy, almost gross out comedy, but, uh, done with three female leads. Um, Jillian Jacobs, who you know from Community, and uh, Vanessa Bayer, who is one of my favorite current SNL cast members. I, I think she's such a breakout star in this movie, so funny, and she really is the biggest comic performance in the, in the whole film. And then uh, Phoebe Robinson, uh, they play three friends. Um, uh, Jillian Jacobs goes to uh, Ibiza, goes to uh, Spain to, uh, for, a, for a work trip, and meets uh, a DJ who she sort of uh, starts having a relationship with. That's really it. It's not. There's not much uh, in the way of of plot. It, but it is just a series of wacky moments that they get into. But it's genuinely funny. I was laughing a lot. I thought it was pretty smart uh, as far as where the comedy comes from. And three very charming comic performances. I found it to be really fun. I mean, it's an hour and a half on Netflix, uh, that time well spent as far as I'm concerned, light and fun. Ibiza is what it's called. Ibiza on Netflix. Uh, very cool. Uh, I, I saw it cross over my, like past my Netflix screen at one point, And I was, I was thinking to myself, is this any good? Uh, nice to hear it has Jeff's recommendation. Uh, speaking of stuff on Netflix, I had a chance to watch arrest development season five. The first eight episodes of which were released on Netflix uh, within the last week. 
which is only half of the season. Yeah, it's right? only half the season has been released. And, uh, I, I mean, I can give my opinion very quickly on it, which is better than season four, not as good as seasons one through three, and still a lot of the same problems as season four. I would say there are two big issues that dog this show in season four, uh, season five. Uh, one is that it's very obvious that they could not get all the actors in the same place at the same time. Still, they do it better than they they do a better job than they did in season four. Right in season four, it really felt like the stories they're trying to tell were struggling against the availability of the actors, um, and that's less the case with season five. But there's literally like a scene where one of the characters puts a sheet over her head. Uh, because they couldn't get that actor to appear at the same time as the, so then they could have a body double stand in for them. Uh, wow. It's it's very ridiculous and very painful. It's it's kind of like you you as a viewer. I mean, I I don't know. Maybe maybe some viewers didn't recognize that or it didn't didn't bother them. But like as a viewer, it immediately ripped me out of the reality of the scene because I'm like, okay, uh, they clearly did this just because they they couldn't get all the actors in one place at one time. And um, I think uh, towards the end of the season, they even start making meta commentary on like how certain characters are missing uh from the show but but uh i thought that really was it was a detriment to the show and I, I spent like a lot of time trying to figure out like is that actor actually there in the same place or are they doing some janky green screen action to to put these two people in the same place and then the second thing that's a problem with season four of arrest development as well is the plot is so ridiculously complex now and and I, i'm someone who has watched Arrest Development, seasons one through three, I would say at least five times all the way through. Like, not, I'm not a Johnny Come Lately. You know, like, I'm, I'm a very hardcore fan of Arrest Development. Um, season four, not as much. Uh, probably did that once or twice. But I, I do not understand what is happening. You know, like, I, I don't yeah. get, like, it is so complex that it fights against the humor of the show. And I think it is like, if, if you are a longtime fan, I think you'll find it difficult to follow. And if you are a newcomer, I think you'll find it completely incomprehensible. I think that's a, that's a problem. That's a problem. I, um, I, Dave, I, I just watched the first episode and I didn't have the heart to keep going. Wow. It's, it's, it's really, it felt exact, all those problems you're talking about, I felt like the first episode is trying so hard to retcon the fourth season and, established so much and catch you up. And it felt like it really, they have this wonderful device of Ron Howard doing the voiceover and, and so much of the charm of those first three seasons is how brilliantly they use that device. But it feels like this season in particular, they're just leaning into that because there's so much heavy lifting to be done to catch you up and untangle all the chaos that they've wrought. You know, it is, it just felt like I'm listening to Ron Howard, you know, try to Dude, like tell narrate me how to an ex- audio book, basically. Yeah. Like he's like, he's like uh, telling me how to install my router. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's so complex. It's really, um, I don't yeah, know. It, it, and it's it not, depressing. it doesn't benefit, it doesn't benefit the show, you know, like to be that complex, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. I think like seasons one through three were very complex in terms of the plot, but it was not too complex. And season four yeah. and five, I feel like have really taken it to a level where so much of the dialogue is explaining what's actually happening. So much right. of the narration is just explaining like what the state of play is, that the humor is very hard is very hard to come through. That being said, season five is better than season four. There were some very, very memorable moments, um, some very funny moments. Uh, and I'll probably still watch the rest of season five whenever they release it. 
but it's 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 pretty rough. It's pretty rough. Do you ever feel like you're waiting for something to happen? That thing that could uh, make your life special. Yeah. Like what? Exactly. Through these doors, John James Audubon. This book is the most valuable in existence. Twelve million dollars in rare books and only one old lady guarding it. What? I think you know what. My heart beats and patterns through the broken side. This is your red pill or blue pill moment, my friend. You're either in or you're out. How can I tell you if I'm in or I'm out without you telling me the first thing about what I might be in or out of? Aren't you even curious? Well, yeah, a prison would be a nice change of scenery. The librarian is the single biggest risk to this entire operation. Can you please not touch the model? Thanks. That was from the trailer for American Animals, the new film by writer-director Bart Layton. Uh, you're listening to the Sash Filmcast, and today we are so lucky to be joined by the film editor at The Village Voice, Alan Shurstel. Welcome back to the Slash Filmcast. Alan, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm great. Thank you very much, guys. It's great to have you, Alan. Uh, I really enjoyed reading your review of American Animals at Village Voice, so can't wait to dive into this film with you. Here's the IMDb plot summary of the film. Four young men mistake their lives for a movie and attempt one of the most audacious heists in U.S. history. Uh, and so Bart Layton, this is a guy who actually made one of my favorite films uh, of 2012, which is The Imposter. Anyone out here mm-hmm. see The Imposter by any chance? Fucking love that movie. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. F- I love that movie. I'm yeah. trying not to curse as much. It's such a great film. Uh, and it's kind of uh, in a very similar style to American Animals. It's kind of mm-hmm. this uh, docu style that also has dramatic reenactments. Uh, but the story uh, in in that film and also the characters are so interesting, and there's this like kind of central mystery to the imposter that uh, I still think about to this day. Like, what you know, I, I don't want to describe anything that happens in that film, but like crazy stuff goes down, and you as the viewer are left wondering why did this all unfold the way it did. It's crazy, and I'd highly recommend you check that movie out. So I was really psyched when I heard that. Uh, Bart Layden would also be making this film that we're reviewing today. So, Christy Puchko, I think this is a movie that you really had a lot of affection for. Tell us why. I loved The Imposter, and I was really excited to see what Bart Layden would do next. And I knew that American Animals was his movie. I knew it was coming to South by Southwest, and I was going to South by Southwest. So I was basically like, I'm in, and I didn't want to read anything else about it. Um, I knew it got mixed reviews out of Sundance and I was just kind of like, whatever, I love the imposter. Let's do this. And it was opening night. It showed after a quiet place and I was like feeling really good. Right. Cause a quiet place was rad and I was, it was a really cool environment to watch it in. Cause everybody's really stoked. It's opening night. And I had an absolute blast with this movie. Um, it's, it's interesting because Bart Layton does this thing where it's sort of a documentary and also, like, sort of a heist movie. And so it's it's Ocean's Eleven-ish at moments. And it's commenting on a lot of film culture within the film of telling the story about these guys. And I thought it was fascinating and really fun. But, and I won't get into this until spoilers, but then the third act does something really different that uh, really made this movie stay with me. And I've watched it again since South By. And I just, I think it's fantastic. I think 
what it has to say is really interesting. I think the performances by Evan Peters and Ann Dowd and Barry, how do we say his name? Keegan? I think he nailed it. Yeah, there you go. That's, Keegan. yeah, with the long E. Great, yep. good, <laughs> awesome. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a really interesting look into this. And as you guys know, I'm really into true crime. So this was just kind of like made for me. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. All right. Uh, well, Jeff Kanata, I think you share a similar sentiment, right? I do indeed. Yeah. I, as is my want, I, I knew nothing about this movie before seeing it and uh, was really taken by it. Uh, I, I thought it to be really fun, really interesting. Well, you know, one of my favorite things, I've voiced this on the show before, one of my favorite things about any based on a true story kind of, kind of film is uh, when you get that cool, like during the credits, here are pictures of the real people or little bits of video of the real people. And you get to see, oh, yeah, 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 look at that. This movie is that through the whole movie. And mm-hmm. so you get, you get that fun itch scratched of like how close to real is this uh, as it's going, which I think is a really interesting, audacious way to do it. I also think it, it's a meditation on memory and truth, mm-hmm. uh, which is very pertinent to today in a lot of ways. Um, and the, the, the idea of trying to not just make a movie that's based on a true story, make a true story and show how problematic that is. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's impossible to tell a true story because memory is fucked up. Like <laughs> our memories are terrible. You know, and the more I, I learn about uh, how the brain constructs memories, the more I'm like, how does anybody ever get convicted of anything? <laughs> you know, because like it is uh, firsthand accounts are almost invariably uh, uh, terrible. And and this movie, I love how it, this movie kind of accepts that into the tapestry of telling the story and what it does with that. Uh, I love how this movie is, you know, I think everybody, I won't say everybody, I think everybody, but I'll just say me. I've certainly had the fantasy of how I would commit the perfect crime, right? I think most people have that fantasy where you take a second and you go, man, that, that Reservoir Dogs sure was a good movie. Boy, how would, right. I, do, how would I do the perfect crime? What would I do? If I was going to do the perfect heist, I bet I could get away. I bet I could get away with murder or whatever. You know, and you do it as just a weird, fun mental exercise. But this movie shows that if, you're not a sociopath and you attempt to do that. It's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And yeah. uh, I just loved how honest it was about that, how, how honest the whole movie feels and where it goes. I think as Christy said, the, the performances are really stellar and there are moments of tension in this movie that rival anything I've ever seen. It is, it's a really fun ride and I would recommend it to anybody. Alan Shurstall from Village Voice. I'm going to read a little bit from your review of uh, American Animals. Uh, This is from the first paragraph. Quote, an easy way to suggest that a tangled story about desperate people brushes up against profundity is to throw the word American in the title. So it goes with Bart Layton's dreary, infuriating, based on real stupidity heist drama, American Animals. Like I, Tanya, the film winkingly dramatizes an incident of criminal violence planned and executed by dipshits and then suggests it tells us something about the way we all live now. And that's the uh, way we all live now in capital letters. Alan Shirstall, uh, tell us how you really feel about this movie. I'm sorry, I'm I'm not a fan, although I do find uh, both of your arguments persuasive about it. And... Uh, and I do think a lot of the 
interesting ideas you're pointing to are baked into the film. They're they're right there. And I agree that the performances are good and the film is occasionally quite tense. The actual heist sequence is, mm-hmm. you know, much more exciting and tense and and visceral and upsetting than I was anticipating. And the the cast, the actors really do an excellent job of uh, I think capturing, you know, college age, early 2000s dipshits, uh, you know, in a small town, you know, there's a scene where they're kind of smoking up their joint in a car in a parking lot, trying to figure out what to do with their lives. And they watch a, 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 a shopping cart on fire, you know, roll past them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that felt very real. And a lot of it feels very real. Uh, I do think it is Ultimately, I found it a a dreary and enraging film, and that is partially due to things – mostly due to things we'd have to get to in spoilers. But there is an act of criminal violence, you know, uh, that Mm -hmm. I I, I allude to in that, and the film treats it as it should. The the film has a kind of grown-up and moral responsibility in its depiction of that act of violence. You know, this is – violence is no fun for anybody. Uh, and the film makes that very clear. Yet, at the same time, the very fact that these guys who perpetrated that get to be here in the film, looking all cut and ripped and, you know, kind of happy, kind of turned on to be in the movie. Uh, really, I, I felt genuine moral revulsion watching mm. this. And I'm not a writer who often turns to yeah. phrases like moral revulsion. <laughs> I can find an excuse for for uh, a lot of terrible things on my screens. But this movie genuinely turned my stomach. Uh, there's a lot made in the movie. There's, there's one thematic thread uh, about kind of young white dudes wanting to matter in the world but not have to work at it. Mm. And – uh, these guys, you know, they get high, they watch Reservoir Dogs, they watch all their all their heist films, they study Rafifi, apparently, I'm, I'm glad to say they have some taste, uh, and then they go out and they, they actually try to do the heist, discover this is a very hard thing to pull off, and yet they are ultimately rewarded with the existence of the film, with their presence in the film, with the fact that they each get to kind of tell you what they're into now. One guy shows off his tattoos. One guy shows off his artwork. You know, there there is a crime doesn't pay theme throughout the film, yet the film's very existence suggests that it does. Alan, yeah, is- I super love your argument because I agree with like 80% of it. Like, I think you're supposed to feel moral revulsion, which we can't get into until the spoilers. But uh, I, I think it's really interesting that you point this out. I, I think it's just uh, a difference in how we're reading the interviews. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it is kind of a... For those who don't know and who haven't seen the film yet, the you find out pretty early on that this movie was made with the participation of the real-life people being depicted uh, in the story. And uh, there's interviews with these people, and there is this kind of moral question that comes up of if the film is theoretically condemning some of the morally reprehensible actions uh, in that take place in the film, doesn't the very existence of the film celebrate these people in some way? You know, uh, and so I think that's a good thing to consider and to think about. And I think we can talk about uh, more of that during spoilers. I, I'm not. I'm not sure how how you would come to that conclusion. And also call them dipshits, and all of us agree that they're dipshits, right? <laughs> it doesn't celebrate them; it exposes them as dipshits. That right. right? It's kind of a monkey's paw scenario where, like, they set out to do, to feel special, to feel that they uh, 
are extraordinary somehow. And they are, but in this, you know, twisted way of like, I don't think you watch this movie and come away happy with them. Like, yeah, they, they show off some things. Um, the showing of the tattoo is a particular moment that I think is really hilarious and weird. Uh, but like, you know, they're not the heroes of the movie ultimately. I also think that their ultimate feelings about each other expose how uncelebrated they are in the film's eyes. Like they, these guys, I mean, I don't want to, I'm not trying to spoil anything. We're so but, dancing on the edge. I'm so anxious. Yeah. <laughs> they are free with their opinions about each other throughout. Mm-hmm. And it. I don't come away with any other feeling than they're a bunch of dipshits. You know, I, I don't feel like the movie is celebrating them really in any way. I, I think it is, it is, you know, it's kind of more like um, a simple plan than it is, you know, Pulp Fiction. It's, it's, it is a movie about idiots who are inept. I, I, I agree with all that. It certainly is all of that. Yet I can't get over the very basic fact that these young men look pretty good and preening on screen and that, you know, on your third date with one of them, they're going to pull this out and pop it in and make you watch it. Oh my God, can you imagine? <laughs> they totally are. I'm sorry. This, I the mean, movie... you're probably not wrong. Because, I mean, these guys obviously have a very warped sense of self in, in that they did what they did to begin with. But um, I, it's interesting that you you keep referring to them as looking so, like, chiseled and, and attractive in the film. Like, they're good-looking guys, but I feel like that's also part of just the privilege of, like, you know, they grew up in, like, a wealthy white community. Mm-hmm. They took advantage of that wealthy white community and they're surviving because they're part of a wealthy white community. And I feel like uh, those issues are never really examined by the film and if the film is poised, and I'm somebody I'm somebody who like you loved Imposter and went into this knowing nothing about it just because mm-hmm. I'm ready to be, you know, dazzled and confused and have a lot to mull over in one of his films. But this movie to me seems poised really awkwardly between uh, like Joshua, uh, Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing, you know, where, mm-hmm. where the people who perpetrated the genocide reenact it for the cameras and are proud of it yet our viewing of that is disgusted right. it seems it seems poised awkwardly between that film and the one about those guys who remade Raiders of the Lost Ark in high school you know it's like kind of really confusingly in between these two and that it doesn't really because of the structure because so much of the film is given over to watching the dramatizations and then we will cut to the real act I mean the real perpetrators of the crime kind of reacting to what we're seeing on screen. Like there's one moment I really detested where something terrible is happening on screen and we cut to all of the guys shaking their heads and looking sad at what they've wrought that. I mean, it feels like you're watching these guys act as you're watching the actors act and the actors are more convincing as these guys. Man, Uh, I just think that's an extraordinarily cynical take. I, I, I really, uh, I really found that to be a pretty honest, like at no point did I feel like these dudes were okay. Like just okay with who they are. uh, There's a couple of moments at the very beginning where you get some giggles and laughter from them from, from a couple of moments. But the vast majority of the movie, when you see the real guys, they are, they uh, appear to me authentically not okay. They are not, uh, you know, happily participating in this movie to get some rub of fame in in, in my estimation. It feels to then, me like... Then why are they in it? I, I yeah, I think I'm actually yeah. kind of down the middle on this. I do suspect that they said yes to this because they thought this is my chance to tell our story because they thought that they could be in a movie. I think that there's absolutely an element of that. I mean, 
they admit to talking about movies so much already that I think that was 100% part of the lure. But I think that Leighton kind of uses that against them. I think that he makes a mockery of them in a lot of the moments where we cut from one to another. Like, there's one sequence where, and this is very early on, uh, where they're, they are comparing what they're about to do to, like, Reservoir Dogs. They're giving each other nicknames. You're Mr. Yellow, you're Mr. Green, you're Mr. Pink. And, like, then they cut back to one of the guys, and he says, it's, like, my least favorite Tarantino movie. And it's such a moment of, like weird are you like being erudite but also like embarrassment and i feel like there's a lot of that and whether or not and uh we'll get more into specifically the part alan's talking about later whether or not you believe they're contrite or not i don't know that the film actually gives a shit if they're contrite or not i feel like the fact that from that point on those guys don't get to talk anymore is more telling their point of view is no longer the one we value let's get to spoilers for american animals starting right now now you're looking for the secret you're gonna see this coming no. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. All right, folks. We are weapons-free on the spoilers here. Uh, okay. So there are so many things to talk about. Um, but first of all, I think it's worth talking about the way this well, well, well there's a couple of things I've pointed out that I really liked about this film one of them is uh, I think this movie makes some really interesting choices when it comes to documentary storytelling one is for instance uh, the idea of having the actual people inside the film with the actor with the actors portraying them right and like interacting mm-hmm. with them I thought was like a really interesting way of of doing that like when one of the characters is like talking with his actor self in the car or when uh, one of the uh, actors is like looking wistfully out the window on the way to the heist at his future real life self. Uh, right. I and in that, both those instances, I felt like that was Bart Layton showing that the story is no longer in their hands. They are helpless to just watch it unfold at this point. You know what I mean? And I don't think that it means like them as people when they were doing it. I think it means them as adults now looking back, they can't change it. This isn't you know, they, they, they've set their story. It's done. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Because, uh, for for instance, like, there's this moment when uh, one of the characters is, on, like we said, is on his way to the heist. He's looking out the window. He sees the actual real-life character, act, uh, person that he's playing, right? Uh, and for me, my interpretation was like, oh, he, he is looking at his future of him being an ex-con uh, and... And, like, his future basically, like, having severe obstacles uh, erected in front of it. You know, like, basically, like, all the terrible things that happen between now and when he becomes his, like, burnt-out future self. And, like, reflecting on that as, as he's going to the heist. That, that's kind of my, mm-hmm. that was my interpretation of that. Um, I can see that. But uh, Yeah, and I, I kind of saw it the opposite way in the sense that I, I, I think I more sympathized with the, the real-life person there kind of wishing he could get himself out of that car you know like don't yeah don't go right right, right. No, that, that's how i read it as well absolutely interesting, interesting. yeah, yeah. so Which i thought that interesting was interesting because like spencer the guy that uh, barry plays in the movie like he tries to even during the course of the plot like push himself out of it a little bit but not actually stop it right it's just that like it's like he wants the deniability later of like well i wasn't there you know what i mean yeah there's it's, kind like, of so that reveal that he stays in you know, he, we think he's quit because he has that big moment, uh, that come to Jesus moment, you know, um, 
and where the where he you know comes and talks to the guy in the bathtub and he looks so cut and so good. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> to be fair to Evan Peters, Evan Peters looks pretty amazing, yeah, even with a terrible T-Rex tattoo. <laughs> uh, but no, that, and then you know, this is that reveal that he's actually still participating, and I thought that was uh, really a bittersweet moment of like this this kid is and it all these guys are just so desperate to belong to something, you know, it just felt like it felt really sad to me. And, and not... the movie is really strong on out of control groupthink, you know, yeah. a- among these young men on all of them walking into the library that first time and yeah. realizing this is a terrible idea. This can't possibly work. And then fleeing and yet still their own group momentum carries right. them through with it. I, I found a, the, the dramatizations, you know, powerful and interesting. I really only object to the way uh, the filmmakers let these guys, you know, have these moments of, oh, I really wish I hadn't done this. Oh, let me demonstrate to you how bad I feel about this. And the ones I object to the most were the ones when we finally get to that, that act of violence, which mm-hmm. is when uh, their heist plan involves subduing a librarian, uh, hog tying her, you know, binding her mouth, and uh, then ultimately getting information from her because they didn't think this thing through well enough. Mm-hmm. And three of the four guys all say, no, I can't do that part. I can't be involved in that part. Yet none of them will stop the heist itself. Like they all want, again, the deniability right, that right. I didn't have anything to do with that part. Yet – they are still willing to, you know, commit the moral crime of setting the events in action that will lead to the thing they won't do themselves actually being done. And the movie is very good on the the actual horror of committing what is, in movie terms, a pretty minor act of violence. In real life, it's like a life-changing, horrible thing. In movie terms, you know, this is just binding her and laying her down. Right. But uh, that's what I thought was so powerful was that Leighton gives you both versions of that, right? We get the fantasy version where it's basically Ocean's Eleven. They're wearing suits. They walk in. Elvis's little less satisfaction is playing. And when they tase Ann Dowd's character in that fantasy sequence, it's like a ballet. Like her arms fly up, her mm-hmm. head goes to the side, they catch her. It all looks very graceful and very simple. And like they keep the whole time they're planning this thing, they keep like not dealing with the reality of what that would be. Like they have the model and they tip over the doll and say, she needs to be taken care of, but they won't like address that it's a person. And then to actually see that sequence and Anne down is so good and so upsetting in that sequence. Fantastic. Yes. It's, you know, disturbing. Right. And that's what I'm talking about. Cause I watched that with like this crowd that was like really happy to be there. Right. And like the first two thirds of the movie allow you that fantasy, that heist fantasy that Jeff was referring to, where you get to kind of be like, what would I do in this situation? You get to kind of imagine yourself as Danny Ocean or, or any Tarantino character, a Guy Ritchie character, whatever, like they're doing that they're going there. And I think that it's Leighton does a really beautiful job of like creating that tone and like, you know, making you guys think of these guys as like the anti-heroes of movies. But then there's this sequence where the reality comes crashing down, where they are not these roguish, cool thieves who are like breezing in and only hurting the bad guys. They are hurting an innocent woman who was very kind to them and like had no beef with anybody. Right. And then they like they're just total screw ups. And like in the end, like they make such an absolute mess of this. So like. I do, I understand where you're coming from, Alan, but I feel like that entire sequence is is where you and I part ways because for me that whole sequence is showing the ugly reality and showing about how these guys bought into like this fantasy of crime movies, right? And imagining themselves as the anti heroes that would swagger in and whatever and be super cool, but like they're 
moronic goons. They are like they're gross criminals that do this horrible thing. And like, I understand that you don't buy their uh, the cutaways. Like after the moment where they leave the library, uh, the film cuts to the real guys, and they're all silent. They all look mournful now it's editing we don't know what they were doing like we don't know what they were responding to or whatever and maybe even if this is them responding to that moment maybe it's not sincere maybe they're putting it on for the camera i don't actually care um because what i thought was so impressive with what the film does is it makes you sit in that feeling of uncertainty with them where they have bound this woman dragged her behind a desk and tased her and left her for dead like she is an older woman a taser could kill her and like they just didn't deal with it they ran away like cowards and the and, movie makes you sit there and to be in an audience that was like 10 minutes before super into it and having such a good time. And now it's dead silence and you can hear a pin drop was an incredibly powerful experience. Like Leighton takes you on this ride where it's fun, it's fun, it's fun. And then it's like, OK, we're going to take this right turn and reality crashes in in a way and, it has been subtly throughout. Sorry, go ahead. No, I don't mean to interrupt. Uh it's it's more than that, and I again, Alan, I appreciate you coming on the show for the first time, and I don't mean for us to to you know gang up on you or anything, but I do think that your criticism lies mostly outside the bounds of the movie, and I my biggest argument against that, uh, against your position, honestly, is I wouldn't say before spoilers is these guys served seven years in prison, like they they did their time, right? They they are not. This isn't. Uh, a easy breezy cover girl, uh, you know, walk down memory lane. These guys did seven years in prison because of this, right? We're on the other side of their debt to society. Um, and I don't know how just the mere fact that we've made a movie about it and included their perspective on it sort of invalidates that seven years of their lives that they lost as a result. As a punishment, I, I would never say that it does, and I have nothing against the idea that after serving your sentence, you you know are fresh and back out in the world, and you've served your debt to society. But I'm sorry, I read those moments of them all looking sad, you know, reality TV style about something bad that they've done, as potentially insincere i don't know but the way the editing the way it's all edited together the way they're just looking like they can't believe that they did this either and shaking their heads sadly uh there's something self-exonerating about it rather than really facing what they've done they just look there like yes viewers we're sad about it too and i i just found it so false and i kept thinking as i was watching it of uh reporters I've worked with who fall in love with their sources, like Mm -hmm. a movie that actually follows these guys' lives now, I could find very compelling. And, you know, seeing how they are reacclimating to society, see how they are actually facing this, to just have the movie show them refusing to acknowledge what the crime will actually entail. Mm-hmm. Then the actual horror of what the crime entails, uh, and there's, then there's a moment where he's sad about what they've done, but not really facing it. it. It just feels empty and cheap to me. I don't know how I don't know how you get that they don't acknowledge what the crime was. I mean, there's literally a moment in the movie where where I think I don't remember the guy's name, the the long haired fellow, the the ringleader. Um, he says, you know, we. I kept telling her I wasn't going to hurt her, and she wasn't going to get hurt. And I, that's not, I was hurting her and he is moved to tears in that moment. Um, I, it just seems incredibly cynical to just look at that and go, 
wow, these guys are having their moment of fame and they're just, you know, it just seems, seems so know. odd can, to me that. I kind of agree with Alan on this one. You know, he's talking about, I, I was a little bit frustrated with that because I, I don't think that there is a true reckoning. Uh, like the, the, the single act of violence, the tasing and the tying her up, it, it is brutally depicted in the film, but I don't know that we really see the real life uh, people reckon with the reprehensibility of that act. You know, like I don't, I, right. I, I, I don't especially know. Not the, guys. Especially not the ones who were willing to have the act happen, but wouldn't do it themselves. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah believe, no, and they I, still, I they still push that away. As, I see all of those guys as empty husks of, of the characters in the movie. Hmm. I see all oh, the guys now as, as really uh, people on the other side of something that shook them and changed them. And part of that probably was prison. And I think that, I don't know. I, I just, I did not get that reading at all. I, my, my reading was, man, the fantasy is, is not real. Like that, and I that is from- absolutely in there, and it could be in there even if these guys weren't in the movie. I, I just feel pretty strongly that the the form of the film, you know, getting like eight tenths actors, two tenths these guys, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't really leave in time to see more than one of them have a reckoning. You know, well, like we don't, don't see them that- pressed on any of this. We don't really get a sense of of how this experience what shook them you know how they've changed how they're facing it and i i think that without that the moment or two of them kind of blinking sadly at what they've wrought just can very easily be read as glib or insincere interesting i i don't think it's cynical your take i just i think it's interesting that you want to see more of of them reckoning with it where i feel like if i had seen more of them reckoning with it i would feel like the film is trying to redeem them Mm. and that's kind of what i like about american animals i don't think layton gives them an out i don't think he makes i think he explains why they did what they did but doesn't make excuses for it i think the film is a chastisement of their behavior and their sense of entitlement that as and this is the other thing i thought was really powerful after all that happens and after they're silent, the next person to speak is the librarian, like the real librarian. And she gets to talk about her experience a little bit. And what I thought was interesting is they don't make it some sort of like trauma porn where she describes how horrible that day was. Like Layton's done that. We don't need to see her cry and be dragged through that experience again. Instead, she says these boys took a cheap, sh- cheap shot to a-, a transformative experience. She writes them off as pretenders. And I thought that that was really interesting and really damning. But like the weight of that waiting for, for to see if she was OK and then to give her the word, I thought was really powerful and I thought does chastise them. But I am curious, Alan, if you take similar qualms with other true crime documentaries that interview the criminals themselves. This is pre- this is pretty unique for me uh, because I, you know, the others ones either go deeper or don't cut them in to the action like mm-hmm. they're passive observers, you know, upset to see what they've done and performing their upsetness. Hmm. Like, I'm sorry. It feels to me like when they're sitting in front of cameras, you know, being interviewed for this, performing. You're always performing right. when you're in front of a camera. You perform in front of a microphone. And I'm watching these guys let me know that they feel bad about what they've done. And that just doesn't feel natural or real to me or revealing. And again, it it feels to me like uh, the director is, you know, giving them this bone, letting them let us know that, yeah, they're not on board with this either, but 
boy, we sure had a good fun time preparing for this. But oh, but I guess yeah, you know, to Christie's question, right? Is is there um, is there no like? Do you do you just think like using film as a medium for redemption uh, is just like always ill advised? You know, you know what I mean, like. Um, no means, but that that does get to I think the heart of my my objection to it, which is we are cued constantly in movies to believe in the redemptive arc. Like it right. is the excuse for like all studio comedies. Here, a guy's an asshole for an hour, then in the last twenty minutes, the love of a good woman makes him a good person again, and right. no longer funny. Uh, and so <laughs> those the, the like just the grammar of those couple shots of them looking sad communicate. Our farm is a dairy farm. We only use organic feed. The cows produce, you know, quality organic milk. Yet all our hens are RSPCA assured, free to roam in and out of the sheds throughout the day. They lay a lovely yolk. The key to our beef cattle is looking after their, their welfare, keeping them happy. At McDonald's, we're proud to source quality ingredients from over 23,000 farmers from across the UK and Ireland. Good to know. To us as an audience, yes, these guys too have reckoned with this and understand that this was terrible. And it does, I think, cue us to feel some forgiveness for them. I don't feel their despair at what they've done. I feel them wanting me to let them off the hook some. I mean, I think that you are 100% supposed to doubt their sincerity, but I feel like that's reflected in the film in the way he he does intermingle the people into the situation and the way he does show scenes multiple times from the perspectives of different characters where like in one scene they're on a porch and then they're in the car or like the thing with which I know in your review you wrote about the purple scarf thing drove you crazy but the guy they meet in New York and like whether his appearance is different it's calling into question the very idea of like truth and memory but also i thought within this genre of true crime doc like how can you trust people that you know are duplicitous like how can we rely on what they say happened when we know they are liars that they lied to everyone in their lives to pull this thing off or not pull it off i appreciate the film underlining that you know uncertainty about this kind of story uh but it's just the way that's all cut together feels to me like it is telling a different emotional story than the kind of thoughtful story you're getting from it. And, mm-hmm. you know, a, a lot of those 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 cute meta prankish, is this what really happened or is this what really happened? Was a scarf this color or that? Did he go to Amsterdam or didn't he? I mean, I remember when, when Woody Allen's Sweet and Lowdown came out in 1999, <laughs> and it's pretty much the same jokes with the, the inconstancy of memory. Uh, I, I didn't find anything in there new or revealing, uh, but you know, I'm I'm glad people who watch true crime movies are going to be forced to think about it a little bit. I guess, but <laughs> I, would, I, I just I, I would say entirely right. depart ways part ways on what the emotional impact of what the film is doing mm-hmm. with these guys in that key moment is. Your hypothetical situation of them, you know, uh, bringing a date home and popping in this movie. I th- I think it's kind of undeniable that that date would go. Oh, there's nothing cool about you. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think I'd love to the... agree with you, but there are <laughs> well, like women that write serial killers in prison. There's well, there's yeah. Yeah. for every My, lid and all that. The point yeah. I'm trying to make with that is this: I I just don't I don't understand a reading of this movie where these guys come out looking better. Like the these guys, I mean, they're puking over themselves in the middle of trying to do this. They're you know they're. Uh, 
they don't end up trusting one another. They have poor things to say about each other. They feel it, it just it is uh, a portrait of ineptitude. And I don't I don't I don't understand how they could even if you're like I'm going to sign up to the, this movie just so I come out looking awesome. This movie didn't do that for them, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I kind dogs. of agree with Alan on this one. Like that there there is some. There is something in the nature of just being depicted on screen in a way that is not 100% horrible that adds some kind of benefit to these people, uh, that, that accrues some benefit to them, and that, uh, and that after watching this, you might not want them to have any benefit from, from, you know, as a result of their crimes. Um, Just clarify this this one point, which is, you know, when the librarian herself speaks, she addresses uh, she addresses one of those themes I mentioned earlier, which is that these guys wanted a shortcut to feeling like the world was theirs, you know, to claiming their piece of the world, to really standing out and being special. And this movie gives it to them. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's a, that's a really good argument. I, I like I hadn't thought of it in those terms. But for me, this movie feels like Fight Club, where it's ultimately about the danger of this sense of entitlement, where like they were dissatisfied with the cookie cutter lives, the easy lives they had been given. So they like using their own privilege had completely no vision of what the consequences of their actions could actually be. And got themselves into this situation that didn't just screw up their lives, but was incredibly brutally harmful to someone else. And I feel like watching that, I totally understand where you think that their reactions were insincere. But for me, I didn't really care. Because to me, at that point, the movie was saying to us, look, these are not like admirable rogues like, you know, Danny Ocean. Like these are these guys are terrible people. And they were selfish and they were like creative. Sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, but they, but it does, I don't, I think it does condemn them. And I, oh, I, I, I buy all really of that. I just would add that uh, I taught, uh, composition i thought composition courses in the early 2000s and no young man ever got the right message from fight club <laughs> I, I mean i know that I, from I like personal experience it. over and over again but uh yeah no you're right i mean it's frustrating on a lot of levels and that's actually what fight club 2 is about uh it's a graphic novel highly recommend it i've interviewed chuck polanook about it because i had a lot of feelings um but no you're right but it, yeah it's it's one of those messages i totally can see getting lost. So I can totally see your point. I mean, it's it's not my take on the film, but I totally understand where you're coming from. Let, let's talk about a couple of other aspects of the film uh, other than what we, kind of the, the moral of the story. Although one thing that this conversation does remind me of is, remember when Wolf of Wall Street came out, guys? Remember how that was a huge mm -hmm. debate? Uh, there was this massive debate about whether Wolf whether of Wall Street yeah, was, glor yeah, was glorifying the lifestyle of Jordan Belfort. And... Uh, and the thing is, like, I could easily read that film as a uh, condemnation of the horrible tactics and, and lifestyle of a, a person like Jordan Belfort. But Martin Scorsese did kind of undercut himself a little bit when he included the real Jordan Belfort in the film at the end. Um, so I, I, there, there is kind of this, like, bad taste in my mouth that kind of lingers as a result of that. And I think, like, that bad taste is kind of something that Alan has been talking about throughout the course of this review. Yeah. Um, uh, I do want to mention that I, I found it to be very refreshing that uh, this is a heist film that actually uh, conveys how complicated it is to actually cash in on the heist. Like we see lots, we, we see many movies where like, oh, we got to steal this like $30 million painting or whatever. But what most people don't realize is that uh, 
having the painting or having the work of art is only half the battle. It is having a legitimate chain of title that is also extremely important. Um, so I like that they made a nod towards uh, this guy trying to find a fence for it. But then like w- mm-hmm. in real life, they're flummoxed at the end when they can't sell the book because they don't have proof that they actually own it correctly. Um, and I heartily endorse those scenes. I really, really enjoyed <laughs> those. And, uh, you know, I think those might be the thing in the movie that maybe does the most to stop young idiots from planning heists. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because you got to move this stuff somehow and you can't just walk into Christie's and get it appraised. Yeah, exactly. Right. And like, Clearly, they both look like children. Like, I, I understand that in college, we like to think we look like grownups. But I look at college kids now, and I'm like, you're babies. Stop it. So, like, clearly, these two young men who look like teenagers walked into Christie's, and they were like, oh, this multi-million dollar book? Yes, yes, it's our father's slash employer's. Like, uh, uh. Yeah, it w- it was really well it was really well done. Like, j- and there's a lot of work I feel that goes into a sequence like that, where uh, in terms of the framing, the setting, uh, the the wardrobe, uh, which camera uh, lens you choose to shoot with, like that just makes it so that these kids look like they completely have no idea what they're looking, uh, what they're doing. I should say, uh, mm-hmm. I-, I thought it was very effective. So anyway, just wanted to highlight that that was one thing I, I really did like about the film. Uh, what I didn't like about the film, one thing I didn't like was just that I felt like a lot of the other uh, characters, other than the main two, uh, the main two characters, Warren, played by Evan Peters, and Spencer, played by Barry Keegan, I felt like the other two characters were basically ciphers. You know, like you didn't really get a good sense of their personality, other than that they're really aggro sometimes. Um, and so I didn't feel like the film struck a really good balance between these four people. Um, but I don't think it really needed to, to land its basic point, uh, which is that, yeah, like you guys have already alluded to, people will do anything to take shortcuts to, to make, to give their life meaning. And I think, um, really that's, that's kind of what I'm left with, uh, after I watched the movie is that these, these people tried to give their life meaning in, uh, the only way they could have conceived of, and it ended up horribly for them. So, uh, I, I, I have sympathies with all of your views on the film. I really like Christie's uh, thoughts. I, I read her review and I was like, yeah, like this movie does a really great job of conveying that uh, this kind of malaise that these people feel and, and kind of this, this desire to do something more. But also, yeah, Alan, after hearing you talk about it, it does kind of rub me the wrong way, like how these this uh, movie depicted these people. Um, and they should- Can I just add one thing there, Dave, which yeah, is something that occurred to me while, as, we, as we've talked through this conversation, I've recalled how many scenes I really enjoyed or found compelling or Please. found, you know, kind of urgent. And I, and I think that holds true. There's, there's a, some that don't work like the stuff with the one kid's dad getting divorced from his mom, whatever. Yeah. But, but <laughs> not great. I, yep. I, I can't help but shake the feeling. And I don't think I put this in the piece that there's a really strong, uh, heist film here, a really strong despairing heist film here that is kind of spliced together with DVD extras from the same heist film. (laughs) (laughs) And is that a good thing or a bad thing, Alan? In your in your situation, depends you on how how convincing you found them. I didn't right. find them very convincing, and was just annoyed at these guys, and thought that I shouldn't have to see them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that will definitely largely determine your view of the film. But it's a film that uh, I think has a lot going for it. I think the uh, Barton Layton style. I lo- I just love the way his the worlds he creates in his movies feel so real. He has this. Um, 
kind of dark blue green color palette that he uses for a lot of his films that is very kind of gritty and realistic to me that totally works for me when I'm watching mm -hmm. uh, his stuff. And uh, uh, Alan, basically I'm talking about like all the reenactment stuff. I thought like putting aside the docu-interviews, you know, I thought the reenactment stuff really, really worked. The, the heist itself is so... I found it breathless and yes. tense. Mm -hmm. and, and, so good. And, and the fact that it all happens in broad daylight where people in shorts and T-shirts are going about their day. And I don't think they're actually in shorts The elevator scene. I can't oh, even The deal. elevator. Like oh. when he presses so great, the wrong like button. Going down the, yeah. going down the stairs with the thing and it had falling and like that level of tension. And then, you know, running out in the street and getting hit by the car, all mm -hmm. that stuff. It, and it's happening in broad daylight. It feels like a, a movie – that got transposed into the wrong time of day. <laughs> you know, it's really, it really feels <laughs> right. really weird. And, and, uh, there's a tension to just how it plays out and when it plays out and how it's shot that I found to be really, uh, really effective. My palms were sweaty through all that. And then I was back to my annoyance every time they cut away. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Christy, why don't you take it home for us? Sure. Uh, I personally really like the way Bart Layton does to true crime between American animals and between the imposter. He doesn't just tell you what maybe happened because in both cases you are relying on the uh, on the stories of people who are proved themselves not trustworthy. And so the movies don't tell you this is what happened. In fact, this one starts with a title card that says this is not a true story. This is a true story. This is not a true story. And it, it, the word not flickers because we just don't know. But what I like about what Leighton does is that he uses kind of Hollywood thriller heist devices to pull you into the story, but then makes you question the story and how he tells it and forces you to come away with this kind of what does this crime say about who we are? And I really like true crime stuff. Uh, I think I've mentioned that several times on this show before. But for me, my favorite true crime stuff is when you show me a crime and then we say, like, you know, what does this say about us? And I think that American Animals does that in a way that was very captivating and really disturbing. Um, and so for me, I just think it's outstanding. All right, Alan, I hope we have managed to improve your opinion on the film by like 3%, maybe, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, maybe 0%. Um, but nonetheless, <laughs> we. You, 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 you guys are, really you guys are convincing you so and persuasive. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, though. This has been really fun because I really liked your review and I was like, let's talk. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah thanks. Sure. It's always a pleasure, guys. We really appreciate you joining us. And, Alan, can you tell us where we can find more of your work on the internet this week? Oh, uh, at villagevoice.com. I've. God, I've reviewed way too many things lately. Uh, and on Twitter, at, uh, at Studies and Crap, which seemed like a really good idea in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff Kanata, where can I find more of your work on the internet this week? Oh, you can always follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Kanata with two N's and one T. And uh, I have a couple other shows you can check out. If you like video games, hear me talk about video games over at DLC, which you can find at 5by5.tv slash DLC. Just put up our big E3 preview episode, and I'll be covering E3 in some special episodes next week as well. Uh, and I do a comedy science show called We Have Concerns. 20-minute episodes. Uh, I guarantee you'll learn something and laugh. Wehaveconcerns.com is where you find that. How about you, Christy? You can find me all over the internet, but I collect my stuff at decadentcredibles.com. I write every day on pajiba.com, and I'm on Twitter at Christy Puchko, K-R-I-S-T-Y-P-U-C-H-K-O. Find all my stuff uh, on Twitter at Dave Chensky, that's Dave Chen, S-K-Y, and DaveChen.net. I'm also on YouTube at youtube.com slash Dave Chensky. Uh, thanks to AdamWarrock.com, who created our theme song, Adam Warrock. 
uh, com. Also, filmmaker Kyle Hillinger for doing our spoiler bumper. Uh, and find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast.gmail.com. Next week, we'll be reviewing Hereditary. Uh, so very excited to talk about that because I think people will have a strong reaction. Thanks for listening to the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. We'll see you later. All right, hello everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast After Dark, uh, which is when we talk about a variety of random topics that didn't make it into the main show. So, Jeff Kanata, it's just you and me this week, and I wanted to do this After Dark segment to talk about uh, Solo, a Star Wars story. So, we should say right off the bat that if you have not seen Solo, a Star Wars story and do not want to be spoiled, you should stop listening to this right now. Uh, we are going to spoil Solo, a Star Wars story. Don't worry, Dave. The After Darks no one listens to. Exactly, exactly. Um, so we recorded our uh, solo Star Wars story episode like before the movie had even come out, right? Uh, we, yeah. we got to we got to do the the unsullied, pure, untainted by popular opinion episode, which is something we we don't get to do that often because um, we often don't see the movie far in advance enough, or we don't record it in advance to uh, to be able to put that out there. But we had that opportunity last week. And um, and I thought it, it's been really interesting to see the response, right? Uh, first of all, from a box office perspective, uh, the movie performed very poorly uh, and has... It very poorly for a Star Wars film. Very, yeah, very great for any other property on the planet. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I think that's interesting, like, is because um, it, it performed probably roughly as good as, like, Ant-Man, right? Like, the Marvel film Ant-Man. We're so used to Star Wars films being like these huge events that make like a billion dollars um, that uh, we haven't yet conceived of a movie like Ant-Man that simply makes half a billion dollars. You know what I'm saying? But I think I think the the paradigm has shifted, right? Because Star Wars movies were rare and special. Yes. And they are not anymore. Right. And so this is the Ant-Man What Ant-Man is to the Marvel Universe, Solo is to the Star Wars Universe. It's another one of these, and it's coming out, you know, in a rhythm that is predictable. And I don't think they are as uh, essential and um, special, quite frankly, anymore. I think they're they're just going to be. It's just how Star Wars movies are going to be. They're probably always going to be solid and successful, but they're not going to be these earth-shattering things because it's not this cultural touchstone anymore because there's just too many of them or there are going to be too many of them right i mean there have been four in the last few few years and i think um i mean i think this movie we'd be having a very different conversation about this movie if it cost 90 million dollars to make as opposed to costing 250 million dollars to make you know um i think it's actually in the long run good for star wars that solo uh did not do well and what i mean by that is a, it may cause them to uh, pursue different stories outside of uh, prequels, right? Like, well, it doesn't seem to be the case with the Boba Fett movie announced and all that stuff. But, but well, yes, I, I, I agree. made the prediction last week, and I still maintain it that like I, 
I don't think that movie is going to be made. And if it is made, I don't think James Mangold is going to be the director. But, you know, mm. I, I've, been, I've been wrong tons, tons of times in the past, and so I might be wrong there too. But I do think that um, this movie and its performance is probably creating a lot of soul-searching at Lucasfilm about uh, is this path about, you know, explaining the origin story of every single side extra in the background of, you know, A New Hope, um, is this a good path to go down? Right, and I, I think that's actually good. They should be questioning that. I, I think, um, you know, like we should try to have more ambitious stories of different tones, of different types, in the Star Wars universe. And I think if if Solo, a Star Wars story, underperforming causes them to go in in, in those directions, uh, that's a good thing. Um, so I I also hope like they take more chances. I yeah. hope that like you know there, there's all this strife with uh, Lord and Miller. And, um, you know, it was really interesting, like, the uh, Kathleen Kennedy in Variety, like, when they're talking about um, Solo, a Star Wars story, right? Like, the the word that she used was unthreatening. I think a Lord and Miller version of this that took a lot of chances with the tone and might not have been strictly what was adhered, like what was on the page and was a little more off kilter and maybe played around with the mythology a little bit might have been really risky. But I think, uh, again, we have no idea. Maybe that film was a disaster. We'll never know. But I I think the idea of having something that's uh, more out there uh, is is a good one. And I think like Solo, A Star Wars Story, not doing well may, may cause them to look in that direction a little bit more. I think the idea in the abstract of something that takes more chances with the Star Wars universe is one I would support and and is a good one. But I think it's too easy to just say, well, hey, I wasn't satisfied with this movie. That movie that they were making would have been better. I, I don't I don't I'm not entirely convinced that the movie Lord Miller would have made. I would have enjoyed more than this one. I really am not. Um, I, I think that the problems are more fundamental than, or at least for me, are more fundamental than just uh, risk-taking or a sort of devil-may-care attitude in, with regard to the character. I, I just think that on a certain level, what are we even doing telling Han Solo's backstory? Like, what, 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 are, what are we there to accomplish, you know? What revelation are we supposed to make here? I mean, what? Why does this story have to be told? And I don't think I'm not convinced that Lord Miller had an answer to that question either. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that, Jeff. I mean, uh, so it's been a, a little over a week. Uh, our review went up last, you know, week and a half ago. We got a lot of response to it. I, I don't know if you you got a lot of response, but I certainly got a bunch of tweets. Oh yes. And, um, I mean, uh, let's just be honest. We we were pretty brutal towards the film, you know. Um, I like, tried to I tried to say a, a number of positive things, and I I tried to uh, temper my criticisms with the fact that I really had some fun with it. But but yes, I think we we picked some nits. I would say eighty percent of our review was brutalizing that film, right? And uh but here's the thing like i i look back on it and i have very few regrets uh about uh, the way we talked about that movie i think that uh, a lot of people were really frustrated by what uh but by uh, actual genuine misunderstandings that we had in our review right um so i want to point out a couple of them and address them so uh i i think for instance i i made the point of well why is it such a big deal uh 
uh, that uh, Han Solo in the movie is able to speak Chewbacca's language. Like, shouldn't theoretically Chewbacca already understands English? Like, or, or and and yes, I understand. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, guys. Like, I know it's not English we're hearing. Like, it's some other language that's being translated into English. But you know, like, uh, wh- why that that shouldn't have bothered me because basic. He's speak- I believe they call it. He he's speaking in that language so that the guards don't understand what they're doing, and it's like that to me is an extremely so. So okay, I, I mean, I, I think the overall complaint of that scene uh, of. Han and Chewie breaking out of jail. I think you you brought it up really well, which is that the way it's depicted is still ridiculous, and it doesn't. It feels like not in keeping with the rest of the tone of that scene. And the idea that oh, okay, um, they're speaking in this uh, Wookiee language so that the guards won't understand. Well, guys, wouldn't the guards still have suspicions like that they're speaking or whispering in some other language? It is just the the way it's again the way it's played is just. Absurd, in my opinion, regardless of whether he's speaking uh, English or basic or Wookiee, uh, it, it just does not feel like it fits in with the reality of the rest of the film. So I, I do want to acknowledge that, like, yes, there, there is a completely somewhat logical explanation for, for that, um, but that ultimately I think the, the complaints about that scene still stand. Um, I think there are uh, – here, here's another issue that was brought up um, – I've actually spent a lot of time thinking through, right? Which is that one of the complaints you made, Jeff, was that the arc of Han Solo is extremely similar to the arc that he has in, you know, A New Hope, right? Because mm-hmm. the idea in A New Hope is that he doesn't give a crap. He's all, um, he's Selfish. all, yeah. He's 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 just he's he just wants to get stuff done. He doesn't care about things, and you know. Yeah, uh, my point was that he keeps his head down. He wants to stay out of the grand machinations of this star war. He just wants to make some money. And he doesn't know about these crazy Jedi or anything like that. And he doesn't want to know. He's been all around this crazy universe. He's seen a whole lot of things. But the fact is, he's just staying out of it and happy to not be swept up in a bigger thing. And over the course of, of really, of A New Hope, but of the three movies, uh, the three original trilogy films, he finds his purpose and finds uh, something to give his life for, give a cause to believe in, and finds hope. Yeah, um, and, and that like th- that you know this is the same arc in this movie as depicted by you know him at the end. He kind of helps out the the rebels right as they're forming the rebellion a little bit. So he kind of gets involved already, and they're like, maybe in the future one day you'll also help out in a huge way, right? Like, yeah, uh, telegraphing what is to come. And many people pointed out, I, I think quite reasonably, that uh, that. That there is an arc in this movie, Solo, a Star Wars story, that I don't think quite comes out. Which is the the, the idea is that uh, he tries to he he starts the movie like really hopeful and trying to be a pilot. I do think it's very frustrating still that like we don't like, like it feels like the movie is setting it up so that we're going to see him become an amazing pilot, but we we don't actually ever witness that when he first sits behind the the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. Like we don't know what his flying skills are really at that point like he he like presumably he developed them at some point or he's just a natural whatever like i did think that was kind of a missed opportunity but um but there is an arc in this movie i'm getting sidetracked sorry jeff but there's an arc in this movie where he does become disenchanted right like 
he has to kill his mentor. His uh, girlfriend has betrayed him. And so he retreats to a life of banditry, right? That That is theoretically what the story of Solo, a Star Wars story is. But yeah, it does, so it does idea, not feel. But it does not feel that. Way. It does not feel that way, in my opinion. Like I, I think the tone, some combination of the tone, um, and the way those final sequences play out. I guess I just yeah. Sorry, sorry Jeff. What were you going to say? You're, you're going to trouble. Well, I was going to say that yeah. to to sum up what you are you're saying, and I think to uh, explain the retort that I most often received uh, via Twitter and email and other places is that. First of all, this is the first of what is supposed to be a trilogy of solo films, I guess. And the trajectory that some people read from this movie is that it is a an idealist falling into cynicism. It's a, it's it's to the the events of these movies will land Han Solo in a place where he then does not believe in anything and is just uh, retreated into his selfishness and ready to be the man we find at the beginning of a new hope. And I, a, I agree with you, Dave, that I, I don't see that. Uh, it, it does in, not in seem rele- to be the emotional reality of the film for me. Correct. You know what I'm saying? Like it doesn't, that's not the guy we encounter. I don't believe that's the guy we encounter in this movie in yeah. solo, a star Wars story. And even, even if that is the case, even if that's the goal of, of where they intend to take this character over three films or however many films they make in this series, in this prequel series, I find that to be a, the least compelling version of a, of a Han Solo character. I, I think it is much more interesting to have Han Solo be anybody I could, anybody we could run into. You know, I always felt like I could never be Luke Skywalker because he's the chosen one, right? He is, he's the son of Lord Vader. He has the force, but I could be Han Solo. Anybody could be Han Solo. And I know a lot of what I love about the last Jedi is sort of recapturing that anybody can be a Jedi feeling, but even more than that, like the idea that Han Solo is just some dude, he's really just some dude. He's, he's just a trucker. They found in a bar at the far side of the galaxy, in the middle of nowhere, in a nothing in nothingsville, like he he has never done anything in his life that was important right. until now. You know, like that that is the guy we find in A New Hope, and I find that to be a far more interesting character for those movies than somebody who has seen it all and been through everything and uh, actually came out the other side cynical. Like I find when he says in, in a new hope, I've been all across this crazy galaxy and I've seen a whole lot of things. I think that's empty bravado. I don't think that's, that's literally true. Just like, I don't think the Kessel run is literally true. Like it's this impressive thing. I think he is, he's, he's a dude who's never done anything of real import in his life. In my, my opinion, I just think that's a more interesting version of that character. And I don't think that, invalidates a backstory that's full of interesting moments. I just don't think those moments have to reach the levels of imperial and rebellion imports. You know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be swept up in these grand schemes of craziness. Like it would be fine if it's just this kind of small town hustle movie starring Han Solo. That would be an interesting version, but it's not what we get. Right. Um, that there's like so. There's a couple of there's a lot in what you said, Jeff. Right. One one piece of it is that 
the most appealing part of Han Solo's character in the original trilogy is that he was basically a nobody, right? That became somebody yes. because of his participation in the rebellion. Whereas Solo, Star Wars story seems to imply he was a somebody already, or at least was at some point in the past, right? Right, and then turned his back on being a somebody at, at some point to become a nobody to then reclaim his somebodyhood. And I just find that to be far less interesting because then literally – it's the problem with prequelization. It's everybody we meet is super important. Like Luke just happens to bump into the guy who's been swept up in all these insane Imperial adventures in his youth. Like it's so much more interesting if Luke and Obi-Wan just roll into a truck stop and pick up any old trucker. And that guy finds purpose in the world that like any dude, any old dude can just find purpose because that's how important the purpose is. Yeah, uh, I, I agree completely with you. And by the way, um, I, I, Chris Taylor from uh, Mashable, I think, um, tweeted this this week. He was saying how uh, he, he tweeted, Reminder, in the Star Wars shooting script, doing the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs was described as obvious misinformation. And he, he actually has a screenshot of the script, script here where Han says, It's the ship that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. And then under it, it says, Ben reacts to Solo's stupid attempt to impress them with obvious misinformation. Uh, And Chris Taylor then goes on to explain that, okay, like it's the first version of the Star Wars script ever published. Um, It's not found in copies of the 1976 shooting trip that have leaked out over the years. Um, But the whole production was so haphazard, Lucas's changes were so constant that stuff was being scribbled on the script in real time. So... It may have not, you know, it may not be canonical that line about its obvious misinformation, but uh, I, I think the spirit of what you said last week and and now is is the same, right? That it matches with that, which is that uh, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily meant to be this grandiose thing that we saw in the movie Solo: A Star Wars Story, right? It wasn't ne- right. necessarily meant to be actually be that impressive, but it has been given that in retrospect. So uh, I think that's one piece of what you said. Another piece of what you said is, uh, and that we've been talking about is like, I don't know that that is the emotional reality of the film for me is that he becomes a cynic or is on his way to becoming a cynic at the end of this movie. And I, I don't know why that is like, I, I, I'll say I'm, I'm at a loss to explain why. Um, there's a scene where Kira and Solo have this uh, discussion when they're in this tent, right? Like towards the end of the film. Where, you know, he, he asks her, like, you know, what am I? Like, who am I? And, and he's like, he describes himself as an outlaw, but he does mm-hmm. it with this smile and this swagger on his face. And I, I, I realized at that moment that I don't really know anything about this character. You know, like, I, I don't know mm-hmm. what this character is supposed to be. I think he's trying to be a badass outlaw, but is he actually, like, are, are we supposed to think that he actually is? Um, the scenes where he's betrayed by his girlfriend, the scene where he has to murder his mentor, um, they they are, are done so quickly and with so little emotional payoff for me that I don't know that it really lands that arc that people have been telling me is in the movie of him um, you know, becoming a cynic or on his way to becoming a cynic because of all these betrayals he's experienced. Right. Um, I think that's really right on. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, Anyway, and I know a lot of people, I mean, the, the, the biggest piece of feedback that I got was, was how many people had fun with the movie and were satisfied with that. And to, to that, I say, good, excellent. I'm happy that you were happy. Uh, I'm certainly not intending to tell anybody that they shouldn't have enjoyed the movie, 
Um, for me, I, I found a lot of fun things that if taken in isolation, uh, would be really fun. I loved watching an old style Western train heist, but done in space. Like that's a great idea. I had so much fun seeing how that all played out and how it was thought through. There's a lot of really cool underworld machinations that are cool to see in the Star Wars universe. I just don't find this movie's prequelness to be uh, – I find it to be so problematic that it just ruins everything else about it. And it's a, it's, it's a bummer. It's a movie that feels extremely disposable and it's a movie that I think detracts from all the other movies in the in the canon rather than adding to them, which is not the case, in my opinion, with Rogue One. I think Rogue One actually enhances the viewing of A New Hope. Um, this movie does not do that for me. And I just want them to get away from feeling the need to prequelize everything and give us backstory of characters we already know. This is a big, rich, interesting universe that is – a tapestry upon which you can tell any story and you don't have to dive back into ones we know the answer to. I mean, but let me, let, me, that- let, me cha- let me challenge you on this for a little bit, Jeff, because I think something that uh, I don't remember if it was an angry email or a tweet that we got about this, but I think something that someone's, someone said was like, uh, like, like, I guess a question I have for you is, is there some kind of like Star Wars fatigue behind your attitude towards this? Because like, imagine if we had never seen Rogue One. Right, like, imagine if it was like Force Awakens, and then this movie comes out, right? And like, we hadn't seen a Star Wars film in in a really long time. Um, would your attitude uh, be different at all? You know, like, I, I don't because, think because it would. You, you don't think, but here's the thing: like, Rogue One also has a lot of problems. Like, like a lot of people, uh, Rogue One. Let's be honest: the entire plot of Rogue One basically is a response to. Uh, what some people think is a plot hole to a throwaway line in Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, right? Like, hey, why was it so easy to destroy the Death Star? Oh, because we have to invent this whole backstory of this dude who uh, created a weakness there, right? But it's right. like, did we really need to know? Like, was anyone like, other than you know, angry nitpicky nerds? Was anyone really? Did anyone really need to know why it was so easy to destroy the Death Star? Isn't that something that like we basically had accepted for decades? You know, so I, I guess I'm challenging you, Jeff, to 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 interrogate your own feelings towards this film and like why this movie created so much ire in a way that Rogue One didn't. Because I think Rogue One is equally like Rogue. Here, here's the thing: Rogue One does do a lot of things differently and better right it introduces like a really diverse set of characters um that are like very memorable uh, and it ta- new and new right it takes some really bold choices with the ending right um mm-hmm. so it's a, so it does it does some really cool things but it it does suffer from a lot of the same issues that solo suffers which is that it's basically answering a question that not that many people had asked right which is why is Death Star so easy easy to destroy? Or how did Han Solo get his blaster? Like, I actually think those are <laughs> like relatively close in terms of their importance. In ter- you know what I'm saying? Like in terms of like the questions. I um, think Rogue One broadens the fronts upon which this Star War is being waged. It takes a time period where we know there is this giant intergalactic rebellion happening and shows us different fronts upon which that rebellion is being act 
acted out. And I find that to be a deepening of that moment. I find that to be really interesting in the sense that here's all these other characters that are doing another thing and it'll impact the people that we know, but their, their story and their sacrifice in that war is a completely unique moment that doesn't, it only brushes up against, yes, it, it answers that question uh, of, uh, that you bring up about the Death Star, but it, it does so by introducing new characters and new themes and new ideas into the Star Wars universe and showing us stuff that's happening uh, concurrently to the things that w- we know about that I think add a layer of uh, – that broaden rather than just sort of tell us the thing that the, the person already told us we know. You know, I understand that we get a line in A New Hope saying, you know, many people died getting us this information or whatever. Although maybe I think I'm you're talking about Return of the Jedi, right? Yeah, right. The many Bothans died. But I, right, but I, right. but I think you're, you're, uh, you're referring to uh, – I want to say opening crawl of episode four? Right, which is like about how they were able to obtain the plans for the Death Star. Right. Yeah. Yes. So clearly, we it, it is another thing where we know they are going to get the plans for the Death Star. So it is it is has the same sort of prequel problem of like we know the outcome, but we know zero about who was involved in that and wh- what that entailed. And I I don't know. I think it enriched the experience. It, it, were I the the uh, were I Kathleen Kennedy? Were I given the the powers of Kathleen Kennedy? I would never have greenlighted either of these movies. <laughs> I would have uh, decreed from on high that all future Star Wars movies that didn't have a numeral in the title that weren't you know the story of of whatever the you know the the numer the mainline Star Wars films all of them had to explore corners of the universe we hadn't seen before. <clears throat> Uh, that's that's the way I would have approached making new Star Wars movies, and maybe that isn't the way to satisfy the most ardent fans. Maybe that isn't the way to ensure the most dollars from box office receipts. But I think it would have done the most good for ensuring that the IP was robust and long lasting. Um, I I've, I think building out this universe, finding new areas to explore, and new people and new things that are happening in corners of it. And even even wildly different time periods, you know, I think that would all be very, very interesting and and much more valuable way to spend time and resources than just showing us how Han did the Kessel run. Fair enough, Jeff. Um, let me share one other thing as we wrap up here uh, about the, the information that kind of came out in the last week and a half, which is one of the things that we ridiculed during our review of Solo Star Wars Story is the moment when Han Solo gets his name, right? Yes. And uh, I said during the episode, and I, and I maintain, that it is one of the like top five worst moments from the whole series. Top three worst moments from the whole series. Possibly, possibly worst. Um, <laughs> but, worse than Bantha Pudu or uh, Yusa saying we's gonna die. It's definitely up there. It's definitely up there. So <laughs> one of the things that came out was that um, that was the scene that actually got the film greenlit, or was part of what what got got the film greenlit. According to Lawrence Kasdan, he he said during the press event, he said, "quote Five years ago, when I came onto this thing, and Disney wasn't on when I came on. Uh, then three weeks later, they owned the company." 
Um, and they came up to Marin, California, and Kathy Kennedy got the people who were already working on it to make a five-minute presentation to Bob Iger and Alan Horn and everyone. My presentation was, Han comes to an immigration spot and someone asks, what's your name? It's not just that he doesn't have a name, which tells you a lot about his, his history. He says, I have no people. That, to me, is so forlorn and so isolating and rife, and the guy fills in his name. Bob Iger said, all right, I'm in. That was it. That was the moment. He reacted to, to it the way I reacted to it, which was, it's very moving. This was a guy who has nothing. Someone plants a name on him. He doesn't even know the guy. It sticks for the rest of the saga. End quote. Barf. <laughs> <laughs> well, t- I, I, I'm very sympathetic to what Kazden is saying there about what he's trying to convey about the character. Sure, right? the sentiment is, is lovely. But I think on screen it comes out not very good, not very well, right? I it think- is also the kind of thing that works in the room, those kinds of rooms, you know? Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, you know, and then the aristocrats, you know? It's like, oh, the, whoa. Um, it, it, it just is so, for me, and I think I said this in our view, so I don't, I don't mean to be redundant, but it, it, it is another example of how the people responsible for these movies don't seem to understand them. Um, because it's not, nobody else in the series has a name that is like, you know, an adjective that was assigned to them, but they all have names that sound like Han Solo, right? It's, it is a very Star Wars sounding name. And it, it, so it doesn't, it's not asking for an explanation. It's not like, oh yeah, everybody has bequeathed a name, you know, at some point. So let, how did Han get his? It, it is, you know, well, it's I, like, I, you know, I speculated about this on, on Twitter and uh, you know, one of the responses I got back, like I think that that naming scene and the Chewbacca naming scene is so cheesy. It's, it's so ridiculous that it feels to me like there's a different version of this film where it's like a, a send up of origin stories. Like it it almost felt like a parody of an origin story uh, movie. And um, someone on on Twitter (laughs) speculated that like, that like it's possible that like Lord and Miller, I, I think it's very possible Lord and Miller like saw the script where it's like oh uh, you don't have a people your name is Solo like it's very possible they saw the script they tried to have fun with it right they tried to like make it into a jokey thing and that Lawrence Kasdan did not like that and like that's part of what led to the undoing like they tried to have fun with the corniness of the script again this is all complete speculation but I, I just can't believe. It's just so difficult for me to believe that, like, that scene was meant to be played earnestly. Um, right. Anyway, uh, so people have their own opinion. Like, it, it works for some people. You know, it really didn't work for us, unfortunately. But, Jeff, any closing thoughts uh, on, a, a, you know, and any, if you had to say anything else to the people who were responding to our solo Star Wars story review, what else would you say or how would you kind of conclude? Uh, I, I mean,. It's hard, right? I, 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 I'm happy that people enjoyed this movie a lot more than we did, and I don't intend to uh, steal anything, steal any of their joy. And and I, I think I mentioned this to you. I don't know if I mentioned this to you offline or it was in the episode last week. Uh, I saw something. Somebody tweeted, you know, I love Star Wars, but uh, oh man, Episode Six is 
is garbage. The Ewoks terrible. Oh, and uh, all the prequels are trash. And man, those new movies suck. And uh, these all I don't watch any of the cartoons or read the comics. But but I love four and five. You know, it's like people who say they love Star Wars, like very small percentage of the actual Star Wars content out in the world. And I'm sympathetic to that. I don't want to be that. You know, I don't want to say like, oh, I know what a Star Wars should be. And this isn't that. And I think a lot of this is me saying that in a large sense. Like this this solo movie isn't really what this character should have been. Who am I to say that? I But it just really feels like so much of this was wrongheaded and unnecessary. And ultimately – all of that would have been fine if the movie had, I think, dazzled in a way that felt fresh and interesting, but it doesn't even do that. Like, it's a competent, fun action movie that a lot of people had fun with, and I did too, but it wasn't worth sacrificing a character on the altar of change and, uh, you know, goofiness to achieve just a sort of fun light movie it just feels like the, the at what cost do we get this movie as far as what it did to the han solo character in my estimation all right well i think we can wrap it up there thanks for chatting jeff thanks uh, to you for listening to our review of solo star wars story and for our attempt at defending our views about it uh we really appreciate it unknown vessel this is Waylon yutani anchor point station Please respond. Troop transport Sulaco. Return. New? The kid bit me! Don't touch me! Don't touch her! Bishop. Hicks. Weapons Division intends to develop the alien. Audible Studios present Alien 3 by William Gibson, starring Michael Bean and Lance Henriksen. Stay frosty. 